It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. To her peers, Candy Montgomery seemed to have it all. She was the picture-perfect housewife and a popular figure within her community of Wiley, Texas. A doting mother of two, she effortlessly balanced her domestic duties, her social life, and her image at the First United Methodist Church of Lucas. But beneath the surface was a woman with wandering eyes, looking outside of her unsatisfying marriage. During a church volleyball game, Candy caught a glimpse and a whiff of her fellow churchgoer, Alan Gore. Alan was married to Candy's friend, Betty. Still, that didn't stop Candy from proposing the idea of an affair to Alan. For almost a year, the pair would lunch and rendezvous at the Como Motel in Richardson, Texas. However, following the birth of his second daughter, Alan ended the affair and focused on improving his marriage with Betty. Candy did the same with her marriage, and before long, life as normal soon returned. That is, until the night of Friday the 13th, 1980. when Candy received a phone call with shocking news. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Betty is dead. Alan Gore spoke those words to Candy Montgomery, who had been watching their daughter, Alyssa, during a sleepover with her child. Alan was out of town for a business trip and was unable to reach Betty that fateful day. When she failed to return any of his calls, Alan asked his neighbors to check on his wife and make sure she was okay. As they arrived at the Gore residence, they uncovered a ghastly scene. Betty was dead on the floor of her utility room, covered in pools of thick black blood. Neighbors initially believed Betty had been shot due to the high volume of blood at the scene. In reality, Betty had been struck by an axe 41 times. Investigators initially believed Betty's murder was a copycat killing from the movie The Shining. However, upon hearing of Alan's secret relationship, they instead looked at Betty's inner circle. After obtaining a motive and fingerprints from the scene, police arrested Candy Montgomery for the murder of Betty Gore just 14 days after the crime. Despite the charges and the public opinion of her, Candy received support from her family, her community, and her church throughout the trial. Candy would ultimately take the stand in her trial and testify that her actions were a result of self-defense claiming it was Betty who attacked her after confronting her about her affair. The following week, on October 29, 1980, a jury of three men and nine women acquitted Candy Montgomery of murder. Attorney Robert Udishen was just 27 years old when he became a member of Candace Montgomery's defense team. 
He joins me now to explain how the trial unfolded, what that legal victory was like, and why the case continues to garner so much intrigue today. I was a very young lawyer at the time. You know, this was more than 40 years ago. You know, so I was a 27-year-old lawyer that I was practicing in Dallas. I'm actually live in North Carolina and retired now. Um, so back in 1980, when this happened, I was in the firm of Crowder and Maddox. And um, the case received a lot of publicity in Dallas and around Texas and actually throughout the country. I mean, this is in the days before social media. And so all the newspapers, television stations everywhere covered it. And I'd heard a lot of, I heard about it. I mean, I, you know, heard that a woman was killed with an ax and hey, but and only a few days later, I came to meet Candy Montgomery and she came to my office because she went to the same church as Don Crowder, who was one of the senior partners in my firm. And she uh, talked to Don about the fact that the police wanted to talk to her and Don told her to come see me because I handled all the criminal work for the firm. So that's how I first met Candy. And the victim in that case also went to that church. Did that prove any conflict um, or did that weigh into the deliberation before you all accepted this case to represent Candy? It, it, it did not. I mean, I did not go to the church. Now, Don Crowder was very active in the church and knew both Betty Gore and Candy Montgomery. Um, and Don initially wasn't going to be personally involved in the case. And, and, and he thought, hey, really, the police just wanted to talk to Candy. There's no way she could really be involved in this case. She was just a witness. She had seen Betty Gore the day that uh, Betty was killed. And, and so Don's assumption was that that's all the police wanted was just to get some information from her, create a timeline. And there, there really wasn't going to be a case for us. Uh, and, but it quickly turned into much more than that. Tell us how and when the case became more than that for you. Well, so the, actually the whole time frame of this case from the time of arrest to the time of trial is very quick. So, so the, the incident in which Betty Gore was killed happened on June 13th, 1980. Uh, Candy, and that was a Friday, Friday the, Friday the 13th. And then the Sunday after that Friday, the, you know, just a couple of days later, the police asked Candy to come in so they could talk to her. And it was that same Sunday when she saw Don at church and talked to Don and, and um, told, she told Don she'd gone in to talk to the police and then they wanted her to come back and give some more information. And so that's when you know, he, he told her not to, initially not to worry about it and they're just trying to, to develop a timeline. Um, so she then went back to the police Wednesday, just a few days later. And on that day, they took her fingerprints and took her shoes and wanted to look at her car. And, and then they asked her, she would come back and take a polygraph test. And so clearly she was a suspect at that point. And this was just a few days after Friday the 13th. So she talked to Don again and, um, Again, he, so that's when he said she, she really needed to come in and see me. She came in to see me after uh, she'd already talked to the police twice, and she had agreed on that Wednesday to take the polygraph exam. When she came to see me, 
the first thing I did was cancel the polygraph exam because I wanted to get a handle on what was going on with the case. And so after talking to her initially, she, she initially denied any involvement in, in the killing. She just said she had, um, she and Betty were friends. Um, Betty's daughter was spending the night with, um, uh, Candy and her daughter, and she'd gone over to Betty's house to pick up a swimsuit so Betty's daughter could go swimming with them. And she didn't say anything really beyond that in terms of, of what happened. Um, but then Thursday, she saw Don again, told Don what really happened in the case, and then came back to talk to me. And then we went through this in detail and started figuring out really what we needed to do to um, to represent her. Could you share the story that she shared with you ultimately of her version of events and sure. as the jury um, accepted? So when she she came back and I went through this with her, essentially what she told me was that this was a story of self-defense and that she had gone to Betty's house like she had uh, told us initially to pick up a swimsuit. Uh, she and Betty were friends. She was having a normal conversation with Betty sitting in the house talking, Betty, Candy was telling Betty about a new business she had just started that do, do painting and decorating. And Betty uh, and her husband, Alan, were getting ready to take a trip. Uh, and so they talked about that. And then Betty Gore gets up, excuses herself from the room, goes out to the garage at Betty's house and comes back in with an ax. And she's standing there in the room holding an ax and in a uh, threatening, accusatory manner, starts asking Candy if she was having an affair with her husband, Alan. And Candy denied that she was having an affair. Then Betty asked her if she had had an affair in, in the past. And Candy told her that she had, and, but that it was over. And at that point, Candy thought, you know, didn't really think she was in any danger. She thought that Betty was... I don't know, satisfied is a good word for that, but that she was satisfied that it was over. Betty put the ax down. Uh, Candy told her, like, under the circumstances that she thought maybe she should just bring Betty's daughter Alyssa home instead of you know, keeping her. And, and uh, uh, Betty's daughter and Candy's daughter were at the church at vacation Bible school at the time. Candy said she would get her and bring her back to Betty. Uh, Betty said, no, just keep her and let's get the swimsuit, and they got the swimsuit and, and a, a towel for Alyssa. And then before Candy could leave the house, Betty picked the axe up again and attacked Candy with the axe. And Candy was struck twice with the axe. Uh, she was with the blade of the axe, and she was hit multiple times with the handle of the axe. And this was like a three-foot-long, very heavy axe. And um, uh, so at that point, Candy started trying to take the axe away from from Betty. Uh, she grabbed a hold of the axe. They struggled over the axe. Candy hit Betty with the axe, and Betty went down on the ground. And Candy tried to to run and leave. And just like a bad horror movie, Betty Gore popped back up and grabbed the axe again and started attacking Candy with it. And then they got into this titanic struggle over the axe and, and Candy ultimately killed Betty with that axe. 
And when she shared this story with you, um, did she have at the time proof of those injuries, defensive wounds and blade and handle strikes? She did. Um, she had a cut on her forehead that was under her hair. I mean, but you know, if you pulled her hair up, mm. you could see her head was cut. She had a cut on one of her toes where she'd been struck with the axe. She had bruises all over her legs and back. And uh, so one of the first things I did was I sent Candy to a medical doctor to document all those injuries. I mean, I, you know, obviously over time they're going to heal and those were corroborative of what Candy was telling me. And so I had a medical doctor examine her, take photographs of the injuries. So if we ended up, I mean, in my mind going to trial somewhere down the road, we would have, have proof of the injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also sent Candy to take a private polygraph test because I, I, I believed what Candy was telling me, but I wanted to document this as much as I can. So I sent her for a polygraph examination to see whether this, this really was self-defense. And um, she passed the, the polygraph exam and that, that supported her story. And then because the nature of the story was so horrific in the sense that there were so many blows, uh, we, when you get into like how many times Candy struck Betty Gore with the ax, I thought it was it was important to get a, a psychiatrist uh, to examine Candy to see if there was some explanation for the the number of blows and explain you know, so we would be able to explain the overkill here because uh, I thought you know any jury was is going to be concerned about just the number of blows and how could that be self defense so I also found a a psychiatrist in Houston, because at this time the publicity was so great around Dallas and reporters following me around, everyone around, Candy around. Uh, I thought I needed to get someone out of town. And I called a friend of mine in Houston who recommended a psychiatrist there that we hired to, to examine Candy. And to be specific, it was 41 blows. Forensics expert Vincent DeMaio later testified in the trial that 40 of them had occurred while Betty Gore's heart was still beating. Can you share what the psychiatrist testified to or concluded that helped mitigate, to your point, the shock of the volume of blows? Sure. Um, So the psychiatrist, um, I mean, testified to a number of different things. Um, One thing that I wanted to be sure that that, that Candy wasn't a sociopath or a psychopath or that she didn't have some kind of mental illness that might have contributed to this. And so the psychiatrist found no evidence of, of anything like that. I mean, he did psychological testing, things like the MMPI, I mean, very standardized test, and didn't find any psychological problems. Uh, I mean, he fully supported the self-defense. But w- what he did find, Candy was a, or is, uh, a very controlled person. She she really is doesn't like violence. She doesn't like conflict. She's a, the kind of person that wants everyone to like her. Very friendly, outgoing, extroverted. But she keeps feelings of anger kind of buried deep inside her. And so one of the things that the psychiatrist uncovered, and and this is really through the use of hypnosis, is that when Candy was a very young child. She was involved in a race with a boy, and 
at the end of this race, the boy threw a jar, something that broke and cut Candy on the head. And she started crying and Candy's mother was telling her not to cry. And what are people going to think? And you know, um, you're making a scene, that, that type of thing. And Candy's mother was shushing her, telling her, shh. And, um, and so Candy, according to the doctor, basically learned from that to control her emotions and anger and not show any anger or emotion. And uh, during the course of this struggle with Betty Gore, Betty started shushing Candy and telling her to be quiet. Candy was you know, screaming for help and trying to get away. And when Betty did that, it triggered this sort of old memory in Candy's mind and, and just released this kind of burst of adrenaline that really caused Candy to just tape the axe and hit Betty as many times as she could to just make sure she wasn't going to pop up again like she did in the very beginning of this struggle. And and that is how the psychiatrist essentially explained the, the overkill on the case. We'll be right back with more of this story. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. During the trial, was there expert testimony on behalf of the prosecution that just in regards to the wounds um, of Candy and Betty that painted a different picture of whether it was self-defense. Um, was there any type of resistance on that part? Yes, there was. I mean, I, I, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, Dr. DeMaio, who was the uh, medical examiner that did the autopsy, and he testified for the state and went into the wounds and, and described you know, some of the wounds that Betty suffered as being defensive, which is, a, I guess, a common thing in a the murder case, if someone is being attacked with a knife or a, an axe or whatever, you know, they might hold their hands up or arms to try to block the blows and have defensive wounds. You know, this was, these two women were both struggling and both had wounds and, and cuts and bruises on, on each of them. So what Dr. DeMaio couldn't say is how this started. I mean, they, they both had wounds and they both uh, were cut and injured. And, and there's no way to look at that and say this wound came before that wound or that Candy's wounds were first or second. So so the wounds were, were in great detail described for the jury. And there were lots of photographs and uh, of Betty's body and photographs of Candy's wounds. And, you know, the jury could take all that into account. Uh, but, but there was no way really for it. The state's expert to say it was not self-defense, and I think that was probably important to the jury. I mean, you just you just can't look at a wound and say this wound here means it wasn't self-defense. Right. You know, hearing the X's and O's of this case, it is a particularly gruesome case to imagine. And given that there was this photographic evidence for the jury, can you describe, you know, as you're watching them in the box, where there are visceral reactions on their part to seeing Candy's wounds in addition to Betty's? So they have, it, it must have had a great impact, both of their bodies. I'm, I'm wondering the extent of Candy's, how did the extent of Candy's wounds impact them, as well, you saw? 
you know, there was a great impact of the jury. The jury, like most juries in, in my experience, pays really careful attention to the photographs and the testimony. Betty's wounds, I mean, to be fair, were a lot more horrific than Candy's. I mean, Candy's wounds were not life-threatening, but she, Candy was clearly cut in more than one place, clearly bruised all over her body. Betty had been hit so many times with the axe that it, it was it was just a lot more gruesome than what happened to to Candy, and, and so the you know the jury fully saw all that, and that was you know I knew before we got to the trial. I mean that was always going to be an issue to try to explain you know the difference. I mean I mean Candy's injured, Betty's clearly injured in a lot greater way, and ended up being killed. It. it and that was the overkill that I mentioned earlier. It, it, um, it, it's just in Candy's mind, I think once she tried to escape and, and uh, Betty popped up and got the accident and kept her from running away, uh, it, it, she, it, the other thing that psychiatrists testify, testified about is that Candy really disassociated from this scene. I mean, she at that point was just, hitting until she became too tired to hit and um, just to try to not to you know, go through this horror again of Betty once again getting up and coming after her. Yeah. And that sounds maybe cold and heartless, but I, um, Dr. Fazen was our psychiatrist and I sat through a hypnosis session with Candy that he conducted so where Candy basically relived the entire event. Uh, and it was absolutely clear to me that she was acting in self-defense you know, when she went through that under hypnosis. A couple of things that I would add, I mean, it, you know, there's, first, there was really no reason for Candy to go over to the house to, to murder Betty Gore. I mean, it, she, yes, she had an affair with Betty's husband. The affair had been over for many months. He wasn't trying to get Alan Gore back. The affair ended uh, mutually. Uh, neither one was trying to get the other one back. Candy didn't take a weapon over there. The axe belonged to Betty Gore. It was in her garage. It wasn't like she went over there, planned uh, this whole incident. I mean, if you were going to kill someone, taking an axe is probably not the best weapon to choose to, to do that. The other thing that, that I think was probably important to the jury is Candy's a really tiny woman. She was about 5'2", 118 pounds. Betty Gore was much larger than her. Betty was 5'6", and around 140 pounds. And, and I've, I mean, I've handled this, this axe. I mean, for a woman of Candy's size to even swing the axe as many times as she did would be it would be very hard without a lot of adrenaline and anger kind of, you know, going going through there from being attacked. I mean, I just don't think, you, you, you couldn't imagine that she would ever pick an axe to go over there and kill her if she was planning to kill someone. Makes no sense. Tell us about, it's as you said, it was clear to you what occurred. You had no doubt that Candy had been acting in self-defense. Tell us about... As her defense attorney, what was that like? What was the tenor of the community at that time? You talked about the media following you around. Um, were you confident going into this trial? Did you feel support from the community? Did you feel 
rejection? Were you expecting um, a great challenge at trial? Describe your experience of this. Yeah, so uh, the publicity was an interesting aspect of the trial. I mean, it's, I know these come along a lot more frequently than once in a century, but this was really like a once in a century type of trial. I mean, if you go back and look at all the, the publicity, I mean, it was just really overwhelming. And just to give you an example of that, uh, this is back the day, there were two daily newspapers in Dallas and, uh, you know, they're both trying to outscoop each other on, on uh, the stories of the case. You know, it's like front page news every day. A reporter for one of the newspapers. One day I get a call from my sister. I have, had a younger sister who called me up and said, do you know so-and-so? And I said, yes, he's a reporter for the Dallas Times-Herald. She said, well, he just called and asked me out on a date. And she had no idea who he was. And he was... Yes, I said, don't go out with it. He's just try, trying to get information, thinking that my sister might know something, which she didn't. But people were trying to get information any way they could. And um, uh, so they were camped outside our office in Candy Montgomery's home and, and uh, just trying to get any scrap of information they could. You know, the community at the time, uh, kind of our approach with the media was and this was really a strategy leading up to trial, was to give the media misleading information, we, which they promptly published, but it, it helped with the trial. We took the position that the state had arrested the wrong person. There's no way it could be a little woman like Candy Montgomery. You know, we're going to reveal the real killer when we get to trial. You know, and all that would end up in the papers and on television and on the radio. And uh, so the community didn't really know the real story until trial. And it wasn't until jury selection that we revealed to the jury that this is going to be self-defense. And, and so a part of that was to try to keep the state off balance. I mean, the state, with the help of the judge, was doing everything they could to interfere with our defense of candy and uh, trying to pressure Candy into pleading guilty. And and uh, they thought, you know, I was a young three-year lawyer with not a lot of experience. And Don Crowder, who was an experienced civil lawyer, had never tried a criminal case. And I uh, said, so we're going up against the district attorney and, and his assistants who had a lot of experience with this. And so they took, were trying to take advantage of us as much as they could. So we thought one thing we could do is just try to, keep them from being as prepared as they might have been. So we never said anything to them, the press, about it being self-defense. Now, once that came out in trial, the people outside of the courtroom were really anti-candy. And that was evident during the trial, and particularly after the trial. The community did not like the verdict. I was driving candy back and forth from her house to the courthouse every day for trial and back home. And we park outside the courthouse. There'd be people out there yelling at us and calling her a murderer. And, and, um, uh, and after the verdict, the, the same sort of thing. And it, and it was to the point where she had to leave Texas because she, I mean, her paper face had been in the papers and on television. She couldn't go anywhere without people 
yelling at her and screaming at her. And so she, she moved out of state you know, shortly after the, the verdict. At the end of the day, you know, that was a, a victory for you in that the jury did, they, they determined that she had acted in self-defense, which meant there was a lawful um, explanation for her actions that had caused the death of Betty Gore. Do you find, given that you just said how the community felt, the community writ large felt differently, had assumed differently, was it all the more surprising to you that the jury found in your favor or going back to how clear it was to you from the beginning, your confidence, you knew they made the right decision and you knew the community writ large then was just uninformed or misinformed? Yes, it's this case is a good example to me of, of what happens in a lot of trials. You know, people form an opinion about a trial from what they read in the newspaper or even worse, what they watch on TV for a couple of minutes or on, on the radio. You know, a ju- the jury sat there for eight days and listened to testimony and looked at photos and they know a lot more about the case than your average person reading the newspaper about it. And so I always tell people, particularly people that want to criticize a jury verdict, you know, you weren't there, you didn't hear all the testimony. I firmly believe the jury made the right decision. The people looking in from the outside have strong, different opinions about it. And, uh, but in my mind, yeah, I mean, you can never be sure what a jury's going to do, but I, I think that was the right verdict and we were confident that we had done everything we could, you know, at the end of that trial to present the self-defense to the jury. And, and from our own expert witnesses, we had a number of character witnesses to talk about Candy. And, you know, just not a violent person who would, would do that sort of thing. Uh, psychiatric testimony. Uh, I mean, there was no stone that we left unturned to present that to the jury. So they had a full picture in making that decision. And she also took the stand in her own defense, which is additionally remarkable procedurally and also just the the sort of rarity. Can share about what that was like? Um, And if you can share about, did she, was it her idea? Was it your suggestion? Did she resist if so? And then ultimately, again, this was successful. Um, How was the cross like of that? You know, can you describe for listeners? Because that's, again, a very rare, but obviously here, totally successful tactic. Yeah, it, it is rare. I mean, I've, you know, practiced criminal defense over 40 years and it's only been two or three times I've ever put a client on the stand. And it's usually a risky, dangerous thing to do. It was our idea to do it. I mean, Candy was a great client in the sense that she would do anything we recommended that she did. Now, I will say she was uh, very nervous and hesitant to to take this day. I mean, we had prepared her. She was scared, as anyone would be. I mean, scared even to be in the trial. One of the things that we hadn't anticipated going into trial is Candy started taking anti-anxiety medication, and when it came time to put her on the stand, she took too much anti-anxiety medication, and, and which really flattened her affect. Uh, understand which worried us in terms of how that would be perceived by the jury. And so Don Crowder, who was a senior partner of my firm, did the direct examination of Candy. And uh, you know, we were sitting next to each other at council table and talking about, we didn't know how this was coming across because her affect was so flat from the medication. 
So what Don decided to do, which actually turned out to be a brilliant thing to do, is he, the axe was sitting there in evidence. He went and picked the axe up and took it up to the witness stand and confronted her with the axe and started uh, showing her the axe and saying, did you use this axe right here to kill Betty Gore? And that really evoked a lot of emotion out of Candy. I mean, she didn't want to look at the axe, but in terms of getting her to be a better witness, it, it was really helpful. I mean, it, she quit being so so flat after that. The cross-examination, in my opinion, it wasn't a great cross-examination. I mean, some of this was, you know, I think could have been better if, if the state had anticipated that self-defense was coming in the trial. They might have been more prepared to cross-examine Candy. So I think it was hard for the district attorney to shift uh, gears. I mean, you know, and all of a sudden deal with self-defense when he thought we were going to be acting like one candy or she wasn't there or someone else did it or and then I don't think he ever really expected Candy to be on the stand. So to me, um he spent a lot of time acting like Candy killed Betty Gore because she wanted Alan Gore back or you know things like that and getting into the affair, which I didn't find to be particularly effective. And because you know this is back there's no evidence that Anybody, you know, Alan or Candy wanted either one of them back or they wanted to start the affair again or be together. And, and it's, it's, there's just no reason, there's no evidence to, that Candy planned this or went over there with the idea to do it. And, and I think that was hard for the district attorney to ever get around. And as we had spent a lot of time with the state's witnesses before Candy ever took the stand, cross-examining them about, Hey, if Candy had planned this, you know, an axe would be a really poor weapon of choice. It wouldn't be easier to take a gun or a knife or something would be easier to handle or take your own weapon instead of a weapon in at the Gore house. And Candy, you know, we tried to stay. Candy never been in the garage at the Gore house, didn't have any reason to even know they had an axe there. So there's just the cross didn't really deal with any of that, in my opinion. I mean, without showing the jury some reason why she would go over there to kill Betty Gore, I think, I think it was hard for the state to overcome self-defense. Did on cross, they ask at all about her behavior or reaction immediately after? You know, if, if you were, if this was a, a horrible attack, why didn't you call 911 at that time? Why didn't you turn yourself in earlier, et cetera? And if yeah, so, what was her answer? That was probably the most effective part of, of the cross because, it, and that was something else we had our psychiatrist address because Candy did leave the house, went back to church where she was a teacher at vacation Bible school. And, you know, she didn't call the police. She didn't tell anybody, didn't tell anyone at church. Um, and, and one thing that, again, the people in the public, and I'm sure the, you know, and the jury had a problem with is. Betty Gore had a, a baby in a crib at home that was there during this, and Candy left the baby there. You know, Candy didn't know Alan Gore it happened to be out of town at the time. Candy didn't know that, and uh, I don't think she was thinking about the baby, but I think after she left, she assumed Alan would be back home uh, and take care of the baby, and it turned out he wasn't, and he was out of town. I think a lot of people were concerned about her leaving the baby there. But 
the bottom line of that, the psychiatrist at that point where Sandy just dissociated completely from what had happened and uh, couldn't believe that she would have done something like that. And that, that must have been someone else in her mind that did that. It wasn't her. And, um, and so that's, that's why she didn't, didn't tell anyone until, until she told. I mean, Don Crowder was really the first person she told. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. After the trial, did you engage in any exit interviews with the jurors? And if so, was there a common thread other than, of course, you know, the prosecution failing to meet their burden, right? That's always the the reason. But was there something that stood out in the jury's minds in terms of the effectiveness and persuasion of your case, of your presentation, where they said, that is what gave me pause or that is what convinced me? Yeah, we we did not. You know, typically, you know, my practice you know, over the years uh, was to talk to jurors right after the trial, just go back and thank them and yeah. and uh, just discuss it a little bit with them about what happened to I me mean, before they leave the courthouse and go go off on on their own. And, and um, in this case, we didn't do that because the verdict came back relatively quickly. Courtroom was packed. There was so much anger outside the the courthouse. Uh, the judge had a whole ring of bailiffs kind of separating counsel table and the bench from the people in the, the courtroom for the verdict to be announced. And then, you know, there was even in the courtroom a lot of uh, hostile reaction to the verdict, people, you know, calling Candy a murderer and that sort of thing. So the judge cleared the courtroom, had the bailiffs escort the jurors away from the courthouse before. Before we left. And so the jurors were gone. And then he had the bailiffs escort us out so, you know, we could get through the crowd. And so we didn't have an opportunity at the courthouse to talk to the jurors. And and that, this just because we didn't follow up with any of them. I think some of the jurors did talk to some press that I I recall seeing, like radio, television, after that. But I think most of them wanted to keep a low profile. You enjoyed this victory, um, you know, through earnest conviction of of that you were on the right side of this, and uh, the jury agreed with you. This was three years into your law career, I believe you said, and then you practiced 40 years after that. Tell us about the impact this case had on your career, this victory had on your career. Did it, did every other case, did anything ever even compare to that? What did you learn from this case as an attorney? Yeah, that, that that's a good question because to have a case like this so early in your career is really a, a huge deal. So I, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount from doing this. I mean, one of the things that, that's so striking, if you look at you know big cases today, like this would never happen. So Betty Gore was killed in June of 1980, and the trial was in October of 1980. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, what even six months. Uh, and to put together a case like this today, that would never happen. I mean, it would be at least a year or more before you'd ever get to trial. So we, you know, I, those months between June and October, I really spent almost entirely working on this one case. I mean, there was so much to do. And between lining up witnesses and experts and pretrial hearings, and I mean, it was a, it was a really... Uh, major education in criminal law for, for those months. Uh, and 
after that, I mean, the good, I mean, I got a lot of publicity and a lot of great experience. The bad was every client that would come in after that, think, well, you got Candy Montgomery over, you know, my case should be easy. Sure. And uh, forgetting that every case is different. And uh, just because Candy was found not guilty doesn't mean you will be. Uh, but it, it was it was great for my career. I mean, I had a lot of big cases after that. I mean, you know, cases like you know, I represented Warren Jeffs and I represented Lisa Diaz, who was a woman that they charged with capital murder for drowning her two children. One of its, There was a whole string, you know, I mean, many years ago of women that had killed their kids and she was one of those. So, so I, it kind of prepared me to deal with other high profile cases like that. Um, it, I mean, you, you know, it's just trial by fire, so to speak. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's an experience I'm really glad I had. Two quick procedural questions, just out of curiosity. Did you move for a change of venue and did prosecution move for a stay or delay at all after they were surprised by your theory of a case and your witness list? We did move for a change of venue and the judge denied it. Right. Um, probably did us a favor now looking back on it. But, you know, the publicity was so great. We thought we needed to move for a change of venue. Um, and we, we tried. Um, the judge... You know, the state opposed changing the venue. The judge really was working hand in glove with the state, kind of helping them any way he could. So we, you know, we had to battle the judge and and uh, uh, the state. I mean, one one great example of this is Candy gets out on bond after you know we you know I turned her in. She you know, we post bond. She gets out, and then two days later, uh, the judge revokes her bond and puts her back in jail without any notice to us. You know, what he did, which I agreed to this to the judge, uh, called me, had his uh, court clerk call me to come up for a hearing in McKinney, Texas, where the uh, case was going to be tried. And the judge wanted to impose a gag order. And and uh, there was a lot going on in the press. So so I agreed, you know, gag order is probably a good idea so the attorneys can quit talking uh, to the press. And so we go up and we have a hearing and the state and I, we agree to the gag order. The judge imposes a gag order. And then he says, we have another matter to take up and a matter in Miss Montgomery's bond. And I had no notice we were going to do anything about Miss Montgomery's bond. And so, but the, the district attorney was there, obviously had noticed. So he was prepared to call witnesses about her bond being insufficient. And so then the judge revokes her bond and throws her back in jail. Uh, and at that point, you know, I'm under a gag order, so then I can't talk to the press about it anymore. And so it was all set up, and there were things like that going on all up to the time of trial. You know, during the trial, Judge Ryan held Don Crowder in contempt twice. The second time, he threw Don Crowder in jail. Um, Can you share why those times? Yeah, so... Uh, Judge Judge Ryan, this was Judge Ryan's last trial as an elected district judge on the bench. And, and he wanted, for some reason, to go out with the bang, and he wanted Candy Montgomery to be convicted on his last trial. And, um, and he was kind of an irascible kind of guy. Don is, was a very aggressive former football player, didn't really like to take guff from anybody. So they would get into kind of verbal disputes during the trial. Uh, the second time, 
they were having a, a dispute. Don got up from counsel table and started walking toward the bench, toward Judge Ryan. Judge Ryan told him to sit back down. He wouldn't sit back down. So he held him in contempt. And this was on a Friday. And, um, and he, he, at the end of the day, Friday, he threw him in jail. And um, so, you know, we needed to work over the weekend to get prepared for Monday. So I had to, to go um, contact the Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin to get them to water Judge Ryan to let Don out of jail. Under Texas law, I mean, I had first asked Judge Ryan to let Don out on his own recognizance, and Texas law requires an attorney who is held in contempt to be released on his own recognizance until he can have a hearing before the judge. And Judge Ryan just ignored the law, locked him up, and so the Court of Criminal Appeals ordered him released. And so he, you know, got him back out before we started back to trial Monday. But we had to deal with things like that all, all those months, you know, like revoking bonds, throwing Don in jail. And, and during the trial, the judge was just doing everything he could to help the state get a conviction. I mean, I've never, I've never seen, I've seen a lot of biased judges over the years, but never one so clearly biased as, as Judge Ryan was during this trial. It really is a trial by fire, the way you describe it. Is there a wing at your law school now named after you for, <laughs> for this incredible legal success on your part? I mean, against all odds, especially the way that you've described. And I think it's difficult to even, you know, the sentences you say, every sentence that you say, that, that, that is an incredible impact on a jury to see the judge and the defense counsel in a, in a sort of contest and to see the judge levy the tools at his disposal. I mean, putting a, a, the, the attorney in court that, that is in jail, that's a, that is a big deal. And it's a big deal for a juror to see that. So the fact that they still determined that Candy had in fact acted in self-defense, the prosecution still had not met its bur burden. I mean, that's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a big deal. And that's why, uh, it, I mean, it, it was a great learning experience. And for many years after the trial, I gave a lot of, a lot of lectures. I, I went to the University of Texas Law School, but I taught at SMU in Dallas for 20 years as an adjunct professor. And, and uh, every year I would give a lecture on this case and because it just had, and there's so many legal issues came up that it was, it's just a fascinating case for law students. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, not sorry for the loss that you suffered at the hands of my University of Washington Huskies this year, Robert. <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave yeah, that topic for another day. <laughs> More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. One, one last question about this case itself, which is, so as you teach it to students, um, you know, what is one thing, one more lesson or one more nugget or one more highlight that you can share with listeners that you underscore for your students as you teach this? What, one, because it, one of the, Biggest learning experiences for me and that I would talk to students about was how to deal with the press. I mean, that's something they don't really teach you in law school on um, what you should or shouldn't say to the press. And, and I've never really, I still don't like uh, the lawyers that get into the no comment kind of uh, response. I mean, I feel like there's always something you can say to the press that's helpful to your client. And, and so I talk about really the strategy we had Okay, the press wants information. We'll give them information that's misleading because it's going to help our client by the time we get to trial. And and I talk about why we did that, but the on I counterbalance that with kind of a lesson on 
why you need to be careful talking to the press because in in the days between Candy becoming a suspect and before she got arrested, you know, and I was I was dealing with the the police and the Texas Rangers and the Department of Public Safety and and you know trying to keep them from basically arresting Candy or trying to work out some agreement to surrender her uh, so they wouldn't come to her house and drag her away in front of her kids. So I wake up one morning and see a headline in one of the Dallas newspapers. It says, lawyer dares police to arrest Axe suspect. And, you know, they were talking, the, the press was talking about me. I mean, I'd been kind of describing what was going on with me and the police and this and that. And the next thing I know, uh, I'm being characterized in the newspapers daring the police to arrest Candy, uh, which was not something I really meant to do. And so one of the lessons I would talk to students about is, I mean, if you're going to talk to the press, which I I do believe in, you have to be careful in what you say and, and think about the consequences of, of what you say and how it might be interpreted before you just kind of shoot your mouth off. And so as part of the sort of the press element then, you know, decades later, this story continues to spark interest among people, um, inspiring, you know, entertainment series like Candy and more recently Love and Death, which is a, a series on TV. What do these dramatizations get wrong or right about the case that you want to highlight? Well, you know, there, there's, there's actually, there've been a lot of dramatizations about this case. I mean, starting back, I don't know if you're aware, many years ago, Barbara Hershey and Brian Dennehy starred in a movie about this case um, where Barbara Hershey won an Emmy for her portrayal of Candy Montgomery. Irony. Yeah, and, you know, there have been shows on Investigation Discovery, Court TV, uh, everywhere about it. Uh, so most of what gets wrong, and this is just the nature of the business, I mean, it, it, kind of the same thing with your podcast, is because you have to take something that's really complex and has a lot of facts and condense it down into a short period of time. And, and that's hard to do. I mean, like the Barbara Hershey movie, you're talking about a two-hour movie that got to get all the backstory and the trial, and you, know, and you just you can't do that, I mean, accurately in two hours. So the best depiction that I've seen in some of this, I mean, I worked on as a consultant with Love and Death, and that was the HBO Max production that David E. Kelly and Nicole Kidman produced. And they were... They hired me to consult. They were really interested in in being accurate. You know, that's not to say they didn't take some artistic license with things. I mean, they they did, and they all do. I mean, there's, but that's a seven part series, so they had more time than any other production uh, to kind of deal with all the facts of this case. And that they did a really great job. I mean, the trial. I mean, what you know, the trial scenes are right out of the trial transcript. I mean, a lot of it, I mean, again, it's condensed. I mean, you can't you know, put the whole trial in there, but the words and, and what happens are, are completely accurate. So I can't really say enough good things about what they did. I mean, they really tried to to get it right. And I think they, they did a better job than anyone has done up to this point. Do you still keep in touch with Candy? And if so, <clears throat> what was the rest of her life like? So I haven't talked to Candy in many years. Uh, you know, she moved out of state. What I understand is that she went back to school, 
uh, got a counseling degree, got a master's, became a, a counselor. Yeah, but and she got she and Pat Montgomery, her husband at the time of this, I understand, got divorced. Uh, but that I haven't talked to her in many many years. There was a book about the case called it. Uh, uh, evidence of love that Jim Atkinson and John Bloom wrote a number of years ago. And Candy did talk to them about the book. And so there's things in, in that book from Candy that, that she told them about. And then after that, like the movie with Barbara Hershey and Brian Dennehy and the, the Candy production on Hulu, The Love and Death, she uh, didn't, wouldn't have anything to do with any of those, and which I really don't blame her. Oh, yeah. At this point, she didn't really want any publicity about it. Yeah. Final question, sir. What would you like to leave our listeners with right now? What final thoughts do you have, either so, about this case or in general? Yeah, I, I, maybe I'll be more general. And I, I, I did mention this earlier, but because a lot of people judge Candy and what happened here from what they've seen on television or read in the newspaper. And they think she's some kind of horrible monster. She's really not. And I don't think people should judge cases just from little snippets of information they have. I mean, really, if you weren't on the jury, you didn't hear everything. You don't know what the right verdict was. And it's not right to criticize the jury and particularly not right to criticize Candy. I mean, she went through a trial, a jury of her peers found her not guilty. And people should accept that just like they should with any other verdict. I mean, that's the way our system works. Um, to, but, you know, there's still people, I mean, I still get emails from people thinking, you know, I'm terrible for representing Candy. And, and you can't imagine what Candy might have got from people thinking what a horrible person she is. Well, I, for one, deeply thank you, not only for your time today and sharing this experience, but um, for your integral part that you have played in keeping our justice system truly just and ensuring that everyone is treated equally or equitably under the law, which I, defense attorneys, in my opinion, are amazing because it's really easy to judge others and it's actually really difficult to represent everyone and anyone and ensure that the state is acting, you know, with the constrained power that we have ensured it does with our constitution and our state constitutions and precedents. And it's a hard world. It's really hard. It's really difficult. And um, you have my utmost respect and gratitude for that. And a lot of people need a counselor in their deepest, darkest moments. And it's really easy to turn your back on people like that. It's really difficult to stand up and show up for someone and to maintain that faith in the system. And to because of your honor and your honorable behavior and practice, that's why we can believe in the system. So I'm grateful for that. Well, thank, thank you very much. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.